Welcome back to Daughters of Darkness and our third episode in our Immoral Tales series, focusing on some of the key directors featured in Pete Toombs and Cathil Toehill's seminal texts of the same name. Today, in a very special episode, we turn to focus on one of France's most sublime filmmakers in the field of fantastique cinema, Jean Roland. So join me, Kat Anninger, and my co-host Sam Deegan as we unlock the delights of Roland's occult, pagan-infused second feature, Le Vampire New, 1970, explore the Sardian women of fascination, 1979, and finally turn to examine the tragic poetry of 1982's The Living Dead Girl. She is gifted with a power that surpasses the imagination that of immortality. This power that she has is due to the fact that she can't stand daylight and can be fed with blood alone. Like a vampire. Just like a vampire. She is one of us. You are one of us as well. Haven't you suspected it? What you have seen and what you will see are only partly reality. Je n'ai pas encore compris. Je n'ai pas compris qui je suis. Tu ne peux pas me sauver, Hélène. Achève-moi. our third Immoral Tales episode on the cinema of Jean Roland and what an amazing timing actually which wasn't planned. No not at all but it's I think we've talked about this on recent episodes where things just seem to be kind of lining up in nice ways for us. When we originally planned this episode it should have been recorded a couple of weeks ago and the timing is perfect because of course, the Indiegogo campaign has just launched for the book. Yes, yeah, so I am editing a book on the films of Jean Roland called Lost Girls, the Phantasmagorical Cinema of Jean Roland, which is written by all female writers. Cat is one of them. And it basically covers the full spectrum of his career all the way from his first film, La Ville du Vampire, all the way through, you know, some of his work for higher projects that are kind of ignored or laughed at, to his hardcore films, to the more popular titles, all the way up to the sad, bitter end. But it's something that I'm really, really excited about. And I mean, it has a bunch of Diabolique writers are involved. Uh, it's being published by Kayla Janice's Spectacular Optical a small print publishing company. And so they're just women involved from pretty much every aspect. I mean, the cover, our PR, it's... I think it's I brilliant. Think... I think it's so overdue. Um, the fact that because he was such a, a, a female-orientated filmmaker, it's weird to be sat here talking about this now, like just over a year on from our first episode, because we covered some on um in those episodes to be here like a year later talking about <laughs> talking very... about this project which wasn't even a project then it's just seems no. slightly surreal but but 
perfect, I think, because of all the women that are involved, even female publisher, like you said, the PR, everything is women. I just, it makes me so happy. I I don't know. It's, if it seems like I don't have anything to say about it, it's, it's because it seems so surreal to be talking about it in a public forum because it just got announced pretty recently and it's, it's due out this summer. Uh, the The launch is supposed to be during the Fantasia Film Festival, and it's it's something that I've been working on for so long, or not not so long because you know obviously like you mentioned a year ago, it wasn't even a project yet. It was but it's just been... after those first episodes, so wasn't it? Or well, not too long after those first episodes, it sort of started to. It's moved pretty quickly as far as books go. And, I mean, there are people involved that are just amazing. I mean, like, Virginie Selavy from Electric Sheep and Alexandra Heller-Nichols and people like Marcel Perks, who's, like, she's written for Eyeball. And, you know, it's just kind of amazing that all of this has happened. So, well, we'll put a little thing with with the episode as well, but we would really encourage people to donate now yes the project because it's a vital project it needs to be out there i think we've done it like a bit of promo for the book previous to recording this episode and i don't know if it will be out or not yet but one of the questions was why why female writers and i think in the domain of euro cult or just in genre film generally it's it's very male dominated it's a very male-dominated arena, and there hasn't really been, up until this point, a sort of feminist slanted assessment of John Roland's work until now. So it makes it doubly important, I think, because there aren't a lot of women women's voices out there, but their actual the way they view Roland, he tends to be a, a filmmaker that a lot of the women writers involved take very personally. Well, because he has so many themes. I mean, certainly something we're going to talk about throughout this episode is he has overwhelmingly female protagonists, antagonists, monsters. I mean, he has, throughout his general body of work, so few male characters that it's definitely unusual. I mean, I know a genre like slasher films, there are a lot of female protagonists, but he puts such a different emphasis on it. Well, it was one of the questions that came up that we were asked recently for an interview was about this sort of, oh, well, how do you feel about his women? Because they were strong, but they were also nude and they were also involved in sex scenes. But to me, that is a source of power. Anyone who's read my work, or, you know, I'm very um, sort of sex positive feminist starting in my work. Just because a woman is nude, in fact, she can be even more powerful because she's naked. And it, that was something he celebrated in his work, which I think, as a female watching genre films, even though, like, Final Girls, you could identify them in a way, there was always this little moral thing in there that all oh, don't have sex because, you know, you'll get stabbed in the head with a pitchfork. But, <laughs> you know, with Rolani, he sort of really celebrated, especially one of the films we'll talk about today, Fascination, he really celebrated that aspect of femininity. And not in an exploitive way. No, and I think that's what initially drew me to Euro horror in general, is that kind of petty moralizing isn't there, 
or it's not there as much. I mean, to bring it back sort of to the Immoral Tales book, all of the films and all the filmmakers written about in that book have that in common. It's this sort of unabashed exploration of human sexuality that sometimes is exploitative, but is often not. It's, I think a lot of it is given a bad rap. Like, Borovchik's films are definitely the same way. A lot of Jess Franco's is people see that there's sex and nudity and just kind of assume the worst, that it's absolute trash, but a lot of these films are really empowering. I mean, even Jose Larraz as well, because he did a lot about female sexuality for older women who were virtually invisible in a lot of genre cinema in that role. They're not sexualized in that way. They're oh. not seen as, as being sexual beings. And he, he even, even Larraz, in a way, had that to his work. Even his sleaziest work, you'd get these little bits in there. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's why both of us love so many of Roland's films and just this sort of loose immoral tales subgenre of Eurocult in general. There's so much to say about it. And I think it gets neglected. I mean, obviously, the Immoral Tales book is great. And a lot of this stuff has been written about off and on over the years in things like Video Watchdog. But People don't take it as seriously as some of the art films that explore kind of similar subject matter. And I just think that's ridiculous. Well, that's something that's always annoyed me personally, is that um, I saw a thing on Twitter a few years ago when some of his films were released on Netflix by quote-unquote feminist commentators, uh, genre fans who'd done some sort of like dialogue about one of the films they were watching it might have even been fascination and the whole tone of their tweets was like here here look at the pervy french filmmaker you know and it was just made me so mad i had to get my, my oar in there <laughs> and it's like you know they just totally overlooked the whole fact that his cinema as a whole was poetry it was pure poetry it defined all the boundaries of genre and art it just defied everything when taken as a whole it's a vision it's one man's unique vision that can't be you know so that attitude that oh look there's a naked woman and all this teehee and you know he was male and so he was exploiting these actresses it's not true at all no it's not true and this is a slightly mean thing for me to say but when i come across those kind of reactions the first thing I think is that these people just don't, aren't informed enough to know what they're talking about because Roland's work in particular, and you can argue this of Jess Franco too, but Roland's work in particular, it borrows way more from this concept of the fantastique than it does from the horror genre in the sense that I think you have to have a good foundation in art and literature to be able to appreciate some of what he's doing and if you think it's just low budget schlock then then you're an idiot <laughs> okay that's what i was gonna say <laughs> i'm that's sorry what i was gonna say but then you're an idiot because it yeah. so wasn't even for my own chapter which i won't go into too much and we're going to do two of the films so it's going to be difficult to try and stay off some of those topics because i want them to stay in the book i don't 
want to put them out there yeah. yet. But I did explore a lot of his sort of fan de siècle influences in art and literature and stuff like Baudelaire and, you know, with a, with a French culture and during art culture that was from the previous century. And I think if you're aware of those references, you can see it all over his work. But like you said, it's some sort of ignorance there. That so frustrating. Even before I understood those references, I could tell there was something else going on. Yeah, there's just something surreal and magical and always unexpected. I mean, Roland was a director who often had work imposed upon him by producers and he said yes to almost everything because he just wanted to work as a filmmaker but despite you know some of the scripts or projects he took over or in the early 70s when producers told him okay you have to have more sex and nudity he still always made it his and there's never really anything conventional about his use of nudity, his use of sex, his use of romance, or his use of genre tropes, vampires. They're all totally his own. Which is amazing. There is some parallel to Franco there as well, you made. You know, he basically just took everything he was offered. And I think we discussed that in the last episode, how he took on work for Harry Allen Towers and then sort of made it his own. So... You know, to just dismiss that and say, oh, well, it's just a, a nudie film from the 70s. is just incredible. I feel sorry for those people, to be honest. I feel sorry for them, too. And I feel sorry for anyone who thinks that in order to genuinely be an artist, you have to be, you know, locked away in this room where you can bring your vision with some sort of high budget and get everything you want. And that's just not cinema that's I mean for a very small number of privileged directors it is but that's not how it is for everyone and I think someone like Roland proves that overcoming obstacles can often make art more interesting I think with his earlier work as well there's that real sort of late 60s early 70s vibe where everyone was sort of really into freedom and experimenting that comes through um, and I think if he had had huge budgets, it wouldn't have been the same because there's just something no. really organic about it that feels really genuine. Yeah, and a lot of the more unusual choices, like in his first film, The Rape of the Vampire, there are scenes where things seem sort of intentionally dreamy or surreal, but it's often because he was just working with what he had. Which is very but, Franco as well, isn't it? Yes, very Franco, but it's also resulted in such unusual work. I mean, Rape of the Vampire, he filmed this basically 40-minute segment, and it went over well enough that they told him, okay, you know, expand this to a feature-length film, and so he treated it like a film serial, which really, and we'll talk about this again in a minute, but film serials from... Everywhere from things like Fantomas from the 1914-1915 to the serials of the 30s and 40s when he was a kid in France really influenced him and he basically made his own. He said, okay, what can I do with this small budget? What can I do with this story that's been interrupted and now has to be resumed six months later? And, and so I just he brought in the vampire queen out in a sort of excellent looking car. Like you do. 
I love that vampire queens, all the vampire queens. I think we've already discussed this on our early episodes. Yes. You know, especially to do with, I think we we did discuss this, but if you look at um, the vampire cinema of the time as well, the dominating vampire cinema of the time, which was mainly hammer horror in Britain, it was Dracula. It was a male sexual predator. And if women became vampires, they would sort of these brainwashed minion types who was sort of, yeah. you know... Victims or the sort of Bride of Dracula type yeah, women they, who just have no personalities, no depth. And they were just, they'd just been infected and they couldn't help it because they'd always, you know, go back to looking very innocent when they died and they were always staked. And so if you look at some of the European filmmakers, you know, you've got stuff like Blood and Roses and Roger Vadim, but there wasn't really a lot, you know, maybe Italian Gothic went against it a bit. But for specifically vampires, Roland was the first one. I mean, he beat Hammer's Vampire Lovers to it by year. With yeah. Ingrid Pitt. I mean, it, but that wasn't Hammer, that was Ingrid Pitt in Vampire Lovers. She made that her own role and she was a, then a female sexual predator. But he was really groundbreaking in what he did. Really groundbreaking. I don't think he gets any credit for that. No, and I think he was one of the first one to to take sort of to take horror genre tropes and incorporate these romantic themes and have it be about the genuine love between people or a genuine connection between people and not have it necessarily always be predatory or sexuality. As we were saying earlier, sexuality doesn't always have to lead to someone having their head chopped off. No, thank God. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) If it did, we wouldn't have a podcast. We would have been murdered by now. (laughs) (laughs) So the first film we're talking about which we briefly covered before, but couldn't talk about at the time on that podcast because it didn't really sort of fit. We were talking about lesbian vampires in our first series of three episodes. But I think I brought it up because I said it was my favourite. It's Le Vampire New, which was 1970, which is his second film. English title is The Nude Vampire, and it really ties into what I was just saying about his love of the film serial, because it was heavily influenced by Franju, who sort of is responsible for kicking off the fantastique in a recognizable cinematic form. I mean, it definitely appears in the early film serials, but I mean, with his films like Eyes Without a Face and Judex, he just brings those sort of strange, surreal elements in such a beautiful way to the screen. Well, there's aspects in um, The New Vampire, which is so Judex, with the weird animal masks and the cult and the people gathering together in strange masks. Um, but he takes a slightly different route to interpreting it, his own route. Well, I mean, he did everything his own way. But it's 
the first time you watch it, it's so jarring for the first maybe, actually for probably the whole running time, because it's impossible to tell what's going to happen. He doesn't follow any sort of accepted formulaic way of laying out a horror film story. No, but it's brilliant. I remember the first time I saw it, I just fell in love with it. It's really lurid colours as well. It's really bright and psychedelic looking. It stands oh, out in, in that gorgeous. way. It's so beautiful. Um, and I'd seen clips of it before I'd actually seen the film. I think I'd seen the, the scene where she's walking away from the house with the vampire in an orange dress like Flaming June and people in these pagan masks. And I thought, what is that? And I what think as I, I said about um, Larasse's uh, The Coming of Sin, it was the same thing with the person in the horse. It just made such an impression on me. Just so, just without even knowing what it was about, it just looks so amazing. Oh, it's, and it's, he has so many scenes like that throughout this film that are just so striking. Like one of the opening sequences, which is my favorite, is they're in a laboratory and someone is having blood drawn, but all the men in the laboratory are wearing these strange masks. They're these sort of like, are they kind of scarlet, like sackcloth masks? They look like weird executioner masks, don't they? They, they do. But the thing that struck me, and I mean, I grew up loving kind of mad science horror, especially with elaborate laboratory sets. But this laboratory set is like nothing you've ever seen. It has all these colored vials everywhere. It's, he just, he makes the whole thing explode with color. And recently I had to send somebody, for promo reasons for the book, I had to send somebody some stills from the film and found myself in the middle of a very busy day getting sucked into watching the Blu-ray again because I just, it was like I couldn't stop. It's amazing. It starts off on this lab where you've got naked women having blood drawn by these masked scientists. And there's lots going on. There's all weird coloured liquid everywhere as well. And you just think, what the hell is this? This, yeah. is, this is great, but <laughs> what is it? And then you're introduced to the main character, this vampire lady. Who has no name. Yeah, what is she credited as? She's just vampire. Caroline Cartier was the actress. She's just this wide-eyed, innocent, strange girl in a see-through orange dress who bursts out of this townhouse into the streets and gets followed by an ominous bunch. <laughs> Very creepy animal masks. Those are great, those masks. Do you know who did those masks? I don't. I tried to find out. I want one. They're just so amazing. Yeah, I, I when I was looking, I couldn't really find... It, it just seemed like it was his regular... So, one of the things we haven't said yet, he frequently, like a lot of other cult film directors, he worked with sort of a close-knit group of collaborators in terms of things like production design and script and he he tended to also work with the same actors but even more so his his crew was the same people film after film they um i mean the production design on this is amazing 
as well. Every room and the costume, and like everything just looks amazing. It's really, really beautiful, which I keep saying, but it is. It's just, I for me, that's why it's my personal favourite. Although I love most of his films, that one just stands out because it's so unique. Yeah, I think if you haven't seen any of his films before, this is a good place to start because it introduces you to some of his themes like the unusual visual world, the use of surrealism, the influence of the fantastique, his sort of strange interpretation of genre themes, in this case vampires, which are utterly unlike any other vampire in 60s or 70s <laughs> cinema. Oh, ever. Yeah, I don't think we said. Oh, ever I don't since. think we said, but... No, no, I don't think we said, but this is from 1970. So it's at that sort of, like, turning point. We, it's also a beautiful love story, which is something that wasn't being done in vampire cinema at the time. And uh, Jess Franco sort of touched on it in Vampirus Lesbos, which was his interpretation of Bram Stoker, which had elements of Carmina in it. But this is actually a straight-up love story. When this girl escapes, she she encounters this young man, Pierre Radamont, who's Oliver Roland, uh, John's brother. And they fall in love at first sight, which is one of the themes that would come up a lot in his work. Over and over. Vampires were lovers. They weren't biters. Yes, or they... There's this sense that his vampires, it's not about, you know, becoming these monstrous undead creatures who feed on human blood. It's about leaving behind this sort of conventional bourgeois life and exchanging it for something else. Something that has sort of a weird spiritual quality that, again, is something other directors just weren't doing. So when he meets this girl... This Pierre, he she's she's sort of taken away, and he finds out that she's being kept holed up in this townhouse, and there's a strange cult. This is another thing I love about it is the whole cult aspect. So I just have a real hard on for films about cults. I know that says a lot about me, but <laughs> yes, I think we've talked about this before. Yeah, we've talked about it before, or anything with people gathered in weird sort of occult rituals or things, or it's, orgies, which yeah. is my favorite. I don't orgy in this though. It's a suicide cult, which is a nice touch. I'll give you the main points. That girl you saw is my protege. She's an orphan, and I was a friend of her parents. The second point, she has a certain kind of blood condition that is unknown. It renders her skin immune. It heals after a puncture immediately, that is, as long as no vital organ is hit. And the third point, in the eyes of certain fanatics, she is believed to be a goddess. So my only connection with this suicide cult was to give them the use of my townhouse on the Ile Saint-Louis. They conduct their rites there. That's all. They so the vampire girl is unique and she's not it's not sort of a conventional movie where she bites people and they're they're transformed. It's all these scientists are studying her because they know that she has this she's almost more like a mutant than a vampire in in sort of a cult comic book general world sense 
But well, he describes them as mutants, doesn't he? In in, in well, the script describes them as does. mutants. Um, and but... says, well, humans call us vampires, but actually we're not. So he makes this distinction that actually they aren't vampires. Oh, yeah, yeah. So th- the character that she's referring to is sort of the grandmaster, and he's played by Michelle Delahaye, who passed away a couple months ago, but is one of the sort of unspoken but amazing figures of of French cinema. He was a really important film critic for Cahiers du Cinema and sort of appears in all of these films. Um, but but we talk, we, to see here. We talked about him when we did Shivers of the Vampire, didn't we? Yes. Because he's I philosophical flares vampire in that. <laughs> Which is awful because he died recently and it was really sad because he's yeah, he's just so uncelebrated. He is. And, and he's I, great in this. He's absolutely brilliant. Well, we'll get to him in a minute, but he's he's just brilliant in this. Uh, poor old Pierre. He he decides he's going to get this girl. He, he tricks his way into this cult. Finds out his sleazy businessman dad is behind it all. I love the the sleazy Radamant, the businessman. He's such a sleaze. Oh, he's terrible. He's just horrible. He keeps sex slaves in in these who are made to wear these weird costumes that look like they're made out of Christmas decorations. Yeah, <laughs> they do. He's got his own like nightclub thing going on where he can have women strip for him, pointy nipple women. He's living the dream, basically. He's living the dream. And it's his sort of... Part of his dream is to discover eternal life so he can do this for forever. Which you can't really blame him. I mean, wouldn't you? (laughs) I would. But if you had your own sort of... I love his little penthouse nightclub thing that he's got going on that nobody else seems to go. It seems to be his own private thing. No, it's his own private nightclub. And I, I don't think we mentioned his... His sort of twin servants are Catherine and Marie-Pierre Castel, who are twins in real life, and they would work with Roland a lot throughout his career, and this is their first appearance. They're great. They're like little sort of slave people. They're always sat at his feet, or it's like when he's on the phone making a business call, he has to send one over so he can finger her. So yeah, he's while like... he's on the phone. <laughs> and he just like I said, like... living the dream. <laughs> So, but his son's not like that. His son is so sweet, I think, which is another reason I think this is quite special. Because Pierre's like the opposite. He sort of, he hangs around with artists and he's against this whole bourgeois system that his dad's part of. And he, and he wants to rescue the girl because he falls in love with her. Who's the girl you have here? I mean, the one who drinks blood. And who are the freaks that kill themselves and smile when they do it? What work is there for these people? And most important, why the hoods when she goes by? The suicide cult's a weird one. They they don't actually know the the deal. They're just these idiots. <laughs> they sort of... They're so well, naive. They're so naive. They think they're part of something really special. And the, and the deal is that they all gather around in this ritual. The girl's brought out, but she's not allowed to see human faces. So they all wear these weird masks. She lies out on a table... And um, they send her a sacrifice. So they, the way they do that is they 
get this projector and somebody's photo randomly comes up and then they have to shoot themselves in the head. <laughs> and then and she gets to drink their blood. And they're so happy about it. I think because they assume it means they're going to come back. Like he, he has convinced them of all these ridiculous things. He's such a scam artist. He's hideous, isn't he? He's just really horrible. He's he just... manipulates everyone. I mean, so Rolan doesn't show parent-child relationships very often in his films, but when he does, they're always incredibly complicated. And usually it's either a father or a mother who's super manipulative to a much more innocent, naive child figure. And he does seem a lot younger than he actually is. Like, he could be... The character could be written as a teenager. He's so sort of sweet and innocent and He naive. is really naive. And he... First of all, his dad sort of makes up some story that this girl's got a disease and, you know, he makes out he's trying to help her and he it's kind so of rude. falls for it but doesn't. He's got this friend who's an artist... His friend's a bit sleazy, though, as well, isn't he? Because his friend's got this oh, sort definitely. of naked stripper woman who lives with him. Um, lots of stripping. But his friend agrees to help him, and they try and infiltrate. And he and it then becomes apparent that the dad is a fucking bastard. He would kill his He's own so son terrible. just to get the immortality. He just... Yeah. He doesn't he care. Would, he will do pretty much anything he has to do, which... Roland does a really good job of slowly revealing throughout the film. Like, you know he's terrible, or you get the sense that he's terrible, but you don't know how terrible for quite some time. No, because he plays along. He's all like, oh, well, you know, it's this girl, and I've got these scientists, and we're trying to help her, and, you know, all these people in the townhouse, well, I'm just helping them because, you know, they want to be in this suicide cult. And it all sounds very reasonable, and then behind the scenes, he's making these sinister little phone calls. We didn't talk about his assistant as well, Solange, oh, who's God. a cow. She's so, she's awful. I want to leave Radamont. He's prepared to commit even worse crimes. The girl at the office, your friend and you saw, is a vampire. She lives on human blood. Radamond is trying to find out what it is that makes her immortal. But to do that, he needs someone with her type of blood. Another vampire. With whom to mate her. But tell me. What do they do? They got together and organized that suicide cult in the Ile de Saint Louis. With people willing to die for her. They haven't yet discovered how vampires recognize each other. They do research, analysis, all those things. How far have they gotten? I think Roland, in general, has a lot of these kind of pure, innocent characters contrasted by more manipulative characters like throughout all of his work and here it's so obvious i mean it's there there's something sort of similar going on in rape of the vampire where it's these four vampire sisters 
and you can't tell if they're actually vampires or if they're just nuts, but people try to manipulate them and convince them one way or the other. And so that's the sort of conflicting forces at work in that film, but here it's definitely he and that assistant are just the worst. Well, she's like a femme fatale. He sends her out to murder men. She seduces them. And she's rotten. She's just got this scowly bitch face. She's brilliant, but she's a real rotter. She's just (laughs) horrible. But she's exactly the kind of assistant you would expect him to have. She's played by Ursula Pauly, who I admit to not knowing anything about. (laughs) No, me neither. No, she's great. She's really good. Not one of his regulars, I don't think, though. No, and it's funny because sometimes he'll have these these people who show up again and again throughout his films. But a lot of the time, it seems like people find their way into his productions on accident. Like, I think that was the case with the Castell twins, was they were hairdressers and wanted to get into acting and really didn't care what they were doing, from from what I understand. So they were perfectly willing to be you know, nude or semi-nude in a horror film, and then a few years later, they're in some of his hardcore films. And I'm guessing that Ursula Pauly is the same way. It's just sort of somebody who happened to find their way into the production. Yeah, she's great, though. It's a shame she never popped up again. She makes a really good bad guy. A good sort of assistant to Radaman, who's just disgusting. He finds out that his son has got wind. Uh, there's also, we've mentioned him, the Grand Master. He's wonderful. Head of the vampires, who sort of like, you know, it's fine. We know they've got the girl, but, you know, we're, we're keeping an eye on him. We're going we're gonna to sort this out. I love his He'll whole... He'll get his eventually. <laughs> yeah, he's like really chill about it. Um, so they take, so Radamant takes the girl to this beautiful chateau in the middle of nowhere to protect her we scared of the the grandmaster i love that chateau it's amazing oh it's so like he just rents it in an afternoon as well he's like oh get me a chateau here you go (laughs) it's like but weirdly it's rented to him by the grandmaster which is funny because so the nude vampire and the film that came after it, Shiver of the Vampires, they both have all these kind of weird class themes where there are characters who have access to a lot of wealth and there's usually a negative association with that. And here, Radamant definitely is portrayed as this sort of debauched aristocrat who will manipulate anyone to get what he wants. It's very gothic, though. That's very classic gothic, which is something that... One thing that annoys me when I read reviews of of Roland's work is that people always go, oh, he's not very gothic. Oh, he was... And I just said he's different to Hammer, but he was totally gothic. Because all this rotten aristocracy theme was... Key yeah, sort in gothic, of these really inherited evil, yeah. evil parents or evil caretakers, totally gothic. It comes from pure gothic, and people sort of completely dismiss that because it didn't look like Hammer. It wasn't staged, formal, traditional looking. But gothic can come in many forms. The whole idea of gothic is just something that reflects the t- fears of the time. 
So, you know, to him, especially with the, you know, late 60s, early 70s, there were a lot of student protests we've talked about. We love talking about it. (laughs) You know, the whole political climate where, you know, you had industry, post-war industry was booming. But then, you know, in Europe, in France, in Italy, you know, even over in Britain, which came a bit later, you had the working class and the students sort of fighting against this bourgeoisie, greedy society. So we yeah, just explore that in his way. Well, I think it it would be hard for him to avoid. I mean, Rape of the Vampire was allegedly the only film released during the Paris riots of 1968 and caused riots of its own when people basically found their way into the theater and thought, what the actual fuck <laughs> is this? I love. <laughs> And I, I mean, I love all those riot stories. And apparently he had to hide out because this like roving band of angry cinema goers were, (laughs) were trying to like find him to personally demand their money back and threatened him with violence and all this other amazing stuff. But I think there is, there's definitely that tradition of surrealist filmmaking and surrealist art causing riots. I mean, Stravinsky and the Rites of Spring caused a riot in Paris. Franju caused a riot, I want to say, at some sort of maybe Scottish film festival or English film festival. When, I can't imagine when, English people rioting at a it cinema. It must have been Scottish Because you're not allowed to speak at the cinema or even breathe or like do anything. Like everyone's so disapproving. Maybe not so much now, but... You know, when I was growing up, you went to the cinema, you just didn't even move, like, <laughs> like scratch Which your head is... or anything. They had to be very quiet. So I couldn't imagine British people, English people, Scottish people, maybe. You know, I if heard some drunk, interesting maybe. stories about uh, one of the cinemas in Scotland after Fifty Shades of Grey. So... Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a story for another day. Yes, that's for when we talk about S and M films. But it's so it's great that you know people were that incensed. I think I find that brilliant. I can't. I just can't imagine it. I mean, Bunuel also caused riots in France, and I, I think, in a strange way, films like The Nude Vampire and Rape of the Vampire, they capture the spirit of the time in an extremely unusual, not literal way. So it's not like you're watching something from the French New Wave. It's totally different than that. But if you know the history, the themes still pop up. Like the weird kind of cult hippie themes here and in Shiver of the Vampires, definitely. Well, the whole narrative moves to this standoff between the businessman in his mansion and then the vampire army who are basically a bunch of hippies there's like uh-huh. people in flares like women topless women in flares and just you know, walking body. around with no there's, shirt on and there's loads of them and they're not violent they can't be hurt by bullets and obviously the the businessman and his cohorts resort to firing off a gun and stuff they're like weirdly that weirdly zen there's like four of them and there's like about I don't know, hundred of these. <laughs> so I don't even know why they try. But their whole thing is they don't they're peaceful. They don't actually they're not actually violent. They just walk in unison. That's all they do. And that's enough to terrify these bourgeoisie business people. 
out of their minds. They're like, oh my god, they're coming. But the, the vampires don't actually... They're sort of really peaceful. And I see them as hippies. That's how I see them. They're like the hippies yeah. sort of fighting I mean, against that's, capitalism. That's definitely how the vampires in Shiver of the Vampires are too. They're very anti-bourgeois. They have these kind of weird open sexual relationships. And they're... So a lot, a lot of Roland's films deal with this theme of sort of creating your own family and creating your own, I don't want to say cult because I, I don't think that's right, but it, it's sort of like starting life the way you want it in a, in a meaningful way and forming these sort of lasting connections. And he, he has his vampires do this, which I think is super unusual compared to the rest of genre cinema. No, it really is. And if there's so many things... Another thing I love about it is there's so much to find in there. Because you've got all these decadent themes, you've got gothic themes, you've got political themes, you've got class themes, you've got so much going on in a narrative that's barely got any dialogue. And it's amazing. It's completely non-linear and completely set in this dream world. It ends up on this beach... Where people go like to this other do. dimension through a stage curtain, which is the most beautiful thing ever, you know? And they're all there with their little anarchy A signs on them, you know, in this utopia where it's all love and peace. And most vampire films end with a vampire being beheaded or staked and some moral church leader or, you know... Van Helsing or someone sort of declaring the the world rid of this evil and you know it's totally not like that here first time I saw it I was just like whoa <laughs> it's like it's no use we do not belong in the same dimension in reality you are still back at the chateau but what about the vampire you and your friends are the real vampires. You fed her blood to habituate her to it. You saw to it that she was kept from the light. Look at her. For the first time, she is seeing the light of day. She's one of us, like Pierre. We're not vampires. Someday, the entire human race will be like this girl. And your son, and myself. We all will acquire the power of immortality. It goes somewhere so unexpected that I don't think there's a way to go from watching Hammer and Universal to knowing what to think about this. So talking of cults, our next film, Fascination, which was a little bit later, 1979, was all about cults, just... They took a slightly different route. And I think it's one of our mutual favourites. I mean, there's nothing like it. No. I mean, it's it's amazing. It has got that same gothic aristocracy being rotten theme, which I love. wonderful and I think this is one of his 
arguably most straightforwardly gothic films, partly because it has a period setting. Yeah, it has a strange period setting though, doesn't it? It's not the atypical gothic period setting. It's slightly later at the turn of the century. Yeah, it's I think 1905 is when it's supposed to take place, but all the women are... So some of them have the kind of typical Rolinian nightgowns, or they just walk around without any clothes on, but a lot of them also wear these sort of more formal, elaborate dress, like turn-of-the-century dress. Yeah, they've got these really beautiful Edwardian sort of Regency costumes with the high-waisted skirts and puffy blouses. Which I wonder if he was sort of attempting to do something like where where he would would show a contrast between this sort of really regimented, ritualized social structure and then how it breaks down and kind of desire and cruelty takes over. Like, there's such a contrast. Yeah, because the women start off looking like these sort of Edwardian schoolmistresses, in a way. I've had to, every time I say Jean Roland, I have to not say Jean Laran, which I said in the first... <laughs> And now we can explain why. And now we can explain why. It's because it's based on... So, John Laran was a decadent era writer. He wrote (laughs) short stories. I wrote about this film for the book and had read a lot of his literature and and part of my essays to do with him. And the names are just so... So, it was all about John Laran. It's based on his short story, A A Glass of Blood. So it's trying not to mix them up because they're so they're so close in name. Now every time I say John Rolan, I want to say John Laran. You know, I became quite <laughs> obsessed with. Um, oh, he's wonderful in the reading of. I mean, he he dealt with all sorts of really strange subjects like vampires, but not in a typical sense. And Rolan uses this same sense of a vampire. It's a decadent vampire these sort of fleur de mal, these these vampires from Baudelaire, who were quite human, but they were people who were debauched, they were bored with existence, you know, this whole late 18th century post-Enlightenment sort of society that was having a massive existential crisis fueled by opium and sex and, you know, well, there is no God you know, what should we do? They're all suffering from ennui, the state of boredom. <laughs> and and sometimes actual tuberculosis. Lots of tuberculosis. I think the original story comes from this idea. Um, I'm not sure if he had TB, but he was, he was ill. He had nose anemic. And obviously, you know, the way they cured that in those days wasn't to give you an iron supplement. They'd send you down to the abattoir to drink ox blood. Which so, <laughs> is rich with iron, to be fair. But but really gross as a and vegan. <laughs> difficult well, it's also difficult to digest, so you you kind of have to get yourself used to it. Like the human stomach isn't really all that equipped to for you to start drinking large quantities of human blood or animal blood. I think it's quite funny when I was researching my chapter and I didn't go this route, so I'll I'll talk about this, but one of my initial ideas was to talk about ritual bloodletting. 
So I went to Sam with any ideas. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh God. You know, where should I, what should I read? And I got an email back in about two minutes with literally 30 <laughs> examples. <laughs> Possibly the quite the most disturbing moment in our career together. We've had medieval torture instruments and you know I, so ritual bloodletting is one of my I feel like I can't say this is one of my favorite the historical subjects and so I know a lot about it randomly and of course when you ask I think I still have that email because after I hit send I was really caffeinated when when you asked as I sometimes am and about 10 minutes after I sent it to you I was like huh this is a little much like this is me being a little intense like I wonder if this is creepy because I was like oh you could go this route where you talk about you know occult bloodletting or you could talk about the sort of like medical fixation with blood and actual medical history where doctors are experimenting with it and they don't really know what the hell they're doing so there's there's a lot there I feel like one day I'm gonna have to actually write about it I think you're gonna have to write that essay because I didn't actually go that route because that would have made it even bigger than it actually was oh it would be unimaginable there was like a thesis in there just in those references but it is, it's, it's ten it's thousand words <laughs> it's like an it's an interesting subject we're introduced to these two ladies who, who toddle off down to the local abattoir for their i like that they get served it like it's wine they do um, but they're stood they've got these very straight lace costumes on and they look very jamir and they're stood in this like abattoir with offal and just everywhere there's blood all over the walls and trails hanging from the ceiling everywhere and they're sort of very you know they lift their skirts up and they come in introduce these two women who were there for their ox blood one of them is elizabeth who becomes one of the central characters frank and may um and fanny magier is helen who's like uh they're sort of these bored parisian housewives i suppose you'd call them uh, they yeah, get told definitely. off for being a bit giggly for giggling, and enjoying yes. the blood. <laughs> They're like wiping it on their lips. They're like, you know, and really getting into it. So that's that's the introduction. Then it goes somewhere completely differently into a, a strange <laughs> into a strange robbery scene, um, which Rolani liked these odd narratives and requiem for a vampire you've got women dressed as clowns escaping um and this sort of for some reason he loved particularly in the mid to late 70s i would say he loved this theme of people staying in a house that isn't their house and someone usually a man and usually a criminal comes in and they're sort of thrown together in what you what feels like and what I think from another director would be basically a home invasion narrative, but he uses them a lot in his hardcore films. And I think it's just a great way to throw people together in this kind of pressure cooker environment where they're all stuck in this house. And it's so gothic. It is so gothic. We get these weird criminals who are dressed up. They're dressed up in these amazing stripy costumes. They're like a band of pirates almost. They look like they belong to they a different are. century. 
They're arguing well, over the spoils of their latest scam. <laughs> and um, that one of them, Mark, who is Jean-Pierre Lemaire, he, uh, he decides he's having all the cash, so he holds the other's ransom and he takes one of their women, like you do, <laughs> and goes off, lets her go. He's not really into her showing her breasts at him. She's like, oh, you can rape me, you can do well, just let me go. He's just like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got the cash. And he rocks up to this, uh, another amazing, beautiful piece of French architecture in the middle of nowhere and meets, you know, possibly the most dangerous women he's ever come across. <laughs> but they look so sweet. So, well, and they're women, and he thinks they're probably defenseless, and clearly has all these ideas of how things are going to go, and he could not be further from the truth. Which I think, I know we've talked about it, is one of the best things about it. You've got, so you've got Elizabeth Frank and Mays, and, and Bridget LaHaye is Eva. She'd previously starred in Roland's Grapes of Death, a, a porn actress who then turned her hand to... to acting in feature films for Alain. He, he, he was, she was like a muse to him. She's absolutely beautiful, really charismatic, and I love her in this. But they... And I think it's, it's, well, I think it's wonderful, their relationship, because she, at the time when porn was legalized in France, she went on to quickly become probably the single biggest hardcore actors in the country, at least for a time. And he was really the only person who gave her a chance in non-hardcore... I mean, she is in some of his hardcore films, but he preferred to work with her in his non-porn films because of that charismatic quality. And she's great. Like you, Well, he thought she looked like tell. a living statue, which she did. Definitely. She had an amazing presence. I think I saw an interview with her. It was a contemporary interview where she said on um, on the previous film, the other actors hadn't really been particularly nice to her. They sort of treated her like she wasn't one of them. She wasn't a proper actor and because worried. of her porn career. But Roland always believed in her. And in the 90s, like here in Britain, he, they came over together for Eurofest and stuff. It seemed to have a really good relationship. Um, yeah, well, she's even in some of his later films, so they they had a long relationship together. I know you like it, but Two Orphan Vampires, I'm not particularly, I don't particularly like that one too much, but I do love her cameo in that. Yes, she does have a nice cameo. She's she, got a great cameo in that film. It's sort of like Mark's role here, where she, she comes across these two innocent girls who are vampires, and they encounter her in the circus it's at night so it's totally empty and she thinks that they're just performers who have lost their way and are wandering around and doesn't think that their vampire fangs are real yeah <laughs> jokes on her no and jokes on mark as well mm -hmm. because he meets elizabeth and eva and he first thing he does is uh, sort of takes them hostage he's gonna hide out in the house he which they think them. is hilarious they do think because he locks them in this bedroom and they've got a spare key so they just giggle about that um, and then have sex. <laughs> like Thank you, you do. do. <laughs> and, and, and I love the fact that, you know, he's like Mr. Macho Man all the way through. And he's like, I'm the big criminal. I'm, you know, I've got the gun. But the whole time he's just he's just prey for the women. 
They they just yeah. think he's a joke. They undermine everything he does. They're always laughing behind his back, and you know they they basically come out and say what they're gonna do, and he just doesn't. He just dismisses. He thinks that. they're well. He thinks they're kidding. It's <laughs> it's really the best dynamic. Je vois que je ne vous fais plus peur. <laughs> nous vous trouvons même très amusant. Malgré votre énorme revolver, vous n'êtes pas venu pour nous voler. Que voulez-vous de deux pauvres petites filles comme nous Sans défense et à votre merci. Je vous en prie, ne nous tuez pas. Vous pouvez nous violer Je vous offre mon innocence en échange de ma vie. Faites-moi tout ce que vous voulez, mais épargnez cet enfant. Je vous en prie, monsieur le bandit, ne nous tuez pas. <rire> The scenes are sort of, the structure of the scenes, particularly in the second act of the film, it's a series of basically him trying to prove his dominance over them, and it just, it gets inc- <laughs> it gets increasingly ridiculous, but they think it's so funny. <laughs> and the, especially the more, the more women that show up, the funnier they collectively think it is. Well, apart from Elizabeth doesn't always find it funny. One of my favourite scenes in it. So he, they, they sort of laugh at him and go, "Ha ha, we've got a spare key, but you know we're not going to try and escape." And they really play up to this old gothic maiden idea that we're all with, we're innocent with these poor women, and he falls for it. Eva seduces him, and the plan is that while they're having sex, Elizabeth will sneak in and get his gun, which she does. But then she goes into the other room and does the most intense, insane facial expression. <laughs> it's almost Zhuavsky level. It is. She's like, it's like Cosmos. It's like the dinner table scenes at Cosmos. <laughs> <laughs> She's just like, you know, really like unhinged and then puts a gun in her mouth and is just there like... Rrr. And then she just, oh, she's back to normal again. I think she's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. She's, she's great. So it's like all this sexual jealousy in there. Um, But Eva loves Elizabeth. She's like, oh, I'm just sleeping with him to get the gun. You know, don't want Because she just sleeps with everyone, you know, just if she thinks she needs to. Then the criminals come and find them. So you get, I love the fact that he has these weird action scenes. It happens oh, in Lemieux when the vampires turn up. These bizarre action scenes. They're not really action scenes. They're acting like, you know, this is robbers against vampires or businessman against vampires. But then he just does something completely different with it. You think well, you know think... what's going to happen and then he just totally subverts that. Which comes right out of the film serials, especially something like Fantomas, where just these absurd things happen for no reason and it gives it this really disorienting feel and I think I mean even in something like Demoniacs or Requiem for a Vampire like you mentioned earlier he tosses in these moments that are from completely other genres and which is one of my favorite things that he does well, it's great and it's and you just roll with it because it's like oh this is happening now Eva of course she decides she she takes the money out to them mark then gets protected by the two women which is great because he's <laughs> such a big man that he can't fight you know his his enemies so they send eva out with the cash to sort of bargain 
with the robbers and they go off to the barn which is this is when the tables turn it becomes it starts off quite light-hearted and silly and you don't really know apart from that initial scene in the abattoir you kind of think where's this going because it's a bit you know it's got these absurd elements you see elizabeth is acting a bit crazy but you don't really know where it's going to go um until the robbers turn up that is <laughs> <laughs> and then you get the iconic scene which is even people that haven't seen Roland films know, know the about image it. um it's so beautiful though it's for no apparent reason and the, it makes really no narrative sense but she just and, and by she i mean ava appears sort of on the this bridge over a small moat in front of the chateau wearing no clothing except for this black cloak and carrying a scythe. She's like, she is like the angel of death. Previously to that, she'd um, been taken into the barn. The, the woman that was previously held hostage is there with her robber husband. And she, she's one of these characters that Sam was talking about earlier, these sort of deviant, nasty women that Roland would have. She's like the robber sidekick and she encourages her husband to rape Eva. She says, give me your, you know, or he says, give, give your clothes to my wife. Um, you can be her. So Eva sort of plays along with it, but then kills him. (laughs) She's great. Um, She is so great. But while he's, so his wife thinks that he's in the barn raping a servant girl and she's strolling around on the moat in Eva's dress. It's so creepy. It is really creepy, like she doesn't care. She's just got this sort of posh dress on and she's just, you know. Of course, then she turns around and the angel of death is on the end of the boat. (laughs) (laughs) What a nasty surprise. (laughs) Stabbed in the head with a scythe. (laughs) So he doesn't, he's, he's definitely usually thought of as a horror director and I get it and as I mentioned earlier I think he should be more accurately described as a fantastique director but he does have especially in these later films like Grapes of Death which came out the year before in 78 and some of the 80s films which we'll talk about in a little bit he does have some really great scenes of violence and this is up there. No the the scythe I always wondered the interview with the vampire. There's a vampire slaying with a scythe in that. Whether it was an influence, where the where um he one vampire goes to the other with a scythe and the the one backs away and then he slices his head off. And I always wondered whether I can't remember if it's in yeah Armand Antonio Banderas yeah. No, I don't think. Yeah, he he's the one with the scythe. I don't I don't remember if it's in the original book, whether Anne Rice saw it or um or you know Neil because Neil, Neil Jordan yeah. was into really into European cinema, which you can tell from Company of Wolves. Yeah, so I, I mean, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I I always did wonder whether that was a little nod to fascination or something that's that's always. I mean, even his recent film, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called. Byzantium. 
Yes, Byzantium has so many Rolan elements. So if, briefly, if you haven't seen it, and I, I think a lot of people ignored it because... I loved it. I, really I loved, loved it, it too. I was I was so blown away by it. I ignored it for probably a year or two, and it's basically a vampire story about this mother and this daughter who are traveling around trying to escape this vampire assassin that's trying to kill them because they shouldn't exist. Because if I remember correctly, because they're women. Yeah, they because be women aren't allowed vampires. to be vampires. Yeah, but there's the sort of family themes and this complicated love between women and these these really deep bonds it comes right from Roland's films and aside from Byzantium there aren't a lot of other vampire movies that do that well he did so, um when he did the, I just did a piece for Scream actually on the company walls and I found an old 90s interview with him which was like Neil Jordan's guilty pleasures and it was all to do with films that he liked um I can't remember what magazine it was in but he was talking about Borovchak and he, um, Lamarge was one of his favourite films. Oh, yeah. That, that makes me like him even more. And Blanche as well, which was like, you know, and there's stuff in his, in his, you know, he's come out and sort of with company said there's so many references in there to Polish cinema. And so I'm, I'm sure he must have been a fan. I wouldn't be surprised. So it's all about the female vampires in this one, but they're not technically vampires again. They're actually No, mortal. they're human. So what transpires is the women are keeping Mark in the house because that evening a whole band of them turns up um, with Helene, who's their leader. And it turns out they're just these bourgeois women who used to go and drink the oxblood, thought, we like this, but, you know... Let's try something better. Let's try the blood of poor men. It's very Darwinian in its sort of thing. So they gather once a year to lure a sacrifice for their strange little meeting that they have. And the reason they give is because they like drinking blood. That's that's it, which I fucking love because it just goes I mean, against what? everything. What more do you need, really? <laughs> They're not <laughs> like film. supernatural. They don't need it to stay alive. They just like doing it. They're just deviant. They're just they're just cold blooded killers. They're rich women. They own a castle. They can do whatever the fuck they want, and they do. They have. And they don't sex want to be <laughs> with whoever they want. They kill whoever they want, and it just goes against that whole moral thing about vampire cinema and the position of women. Even further than Franco went, even. Oh, absolutely. And it's so... It's just such an unexpected turn. And it makes perfect thematic sense compared to his other films. But, I mean, this is really the kind of subject matter that I think sets him apart from a lot of other directors. Even, you know, we've mentioned La Raz and Jess Franco, Borovchik he just he pushed it so much further and this is why it upsets me so much when people talk about him as an exploitation director or not that there's anything wrong with exploitation i love a lot of those films but i think if you're gonna talk about someone like Rolan, you should be informed before you say things like you know he's misogynistic and otherwise i'm gonna come to your house and set it on fire probably <laughs> 
Well, there's something very powerful about that narrative that you there know, is that there are these women who can do what they want because they're powerful because they're rich. It goes against every every horror film code. They're not victims, you know. They're cruel because they decide to be, and they can get yes. away with it. <laughs> which, which I think is such a distinction because there are. As, as I mentioned earlier, like the slasher genre, there are plenty of female characters in horror films that are pushed to violence or pushed to cruelty, but they're not pushed. It's a conscious decision and they're not forced to drink blood. You know, unlike the next film we're going to talk about, they're not forced to drink blood or forced to kill anyone because of some supernatural reason. They just like doing it. No, and fair fucking play. <laughs> <laughs> I think for a lot of people, a lot of women, fascination is their favourite, or it's their first. It's one of those films that sort of, because to see women in those kind of roles where they are powerful, and they don't get punished for being a sort of a certain way, and they don't get punished for their sexuality, is quite rare. Of course, there are aspects in it in a lot of, especially Euro cult. But like Sam said, this is something different. It's totally unrestrained. And I think this is actually why I like Two Orphan Vampires, because even though some of his later films are a little bit clunky, and they certainly have flawed elements, stuff like uh, Fiancé of Dracula and Mask of Medusa... I just couldn't get through that song. <laughs> well, they... <laughs> They are all about giving women this sort of unrestrained power and seeing where it takes them. And sometimes it takes them to violence and cruelty. But actually, in all three of those films, it does. But there's no, there's no sense that they're victimized or they're doing things that they don't want to do because some man is forcing them to do it. No, and hear, hear. The next, <laughs> the next film... Um, and we did sort of talk about this um, on those first episodes, but we didn't really go too in-depth in it, is... Oh, this is <laughs> this is going to be hard for me to talk about, I think. It's... In, in a short amount of time, at least. No, it is one of his most poignant films. His most it's poetic, also... but also most gore-laden. Yeah. And I think it's also one of his most accessible. So what we're talking about now is Living Dead Girl from 1982, which does have things in common with fascination in the sense that most of it takes place at this chateau in the middle of the French countryside. And it's a universe largely comprised of women. And the, the plot is different and the sort of community is a lot smaller, but like the sort of pairing of Eva and Elizabeth, it does focus on two women in particular, which is something that I wrote about for the book because he has so many of these films that center on these sort of pairs of female protagonists with these really complicated relationships.
So the two women are Helene, Marina Piero, who we both love. Love her so much. <laughs> if, if you don't know who she is, she's a Borovchik regular. Basically his second muse. He was in some brilliant films. My favourite of her role to Borovchik was Dr. Jackal, though, obviously. It's it's the best. There are some parallels. Once you get talking to the, about the plot in this as well, I think there's some parallels in this when it comes to sort of animal nature and cruelty definitely and then we've got francois blanchard as catherine valmont who is the living dead girl and who is such a such a beautifully realized but tragic figure and i think that's one so this this was my first i think yours as well right yeah it was my first as well it's um it's probably one of his most conventional in a way, but but yeah, it's, no, in terms it's not of conventional. We're saying conventional, it's it's not conventional. It's, so it's probably think, a good place to start for beginners. Yeah. It's one of his most narratively accessible. He doesn't make these kinds of genre leaps or include as many surreal elements as he does in some of the earlier or even some of the later films. No, it's pretty straightforward. I think because it focuses so much on the relationship between the two women as well, it's quite easy to build something around that. It's it's set in another beautiful rural stately home, which it doesn't go beyond that really. So there's not all this moving around and car chases and clowns <laughs> jumping out of cars, women coming out of clocks or, you know, none of that going on. But there, I, there are some wild scenes. There are some wild scenes, including the the beginning, which was the beginning and the end are both insane for different reasons. <laughs> yeah. The, the first time I saw it with the beginning, the beginning starts off like I mean, this came out like, and I said this before when we talked about it, in the middle of like the golden era of the slashers. Where even people like uh, Jess Franco was making Bloody Moon and Fulci was doing New York Ripper and, you know, most of the Euro directors were trying to keep up with America and keep up with this demand for very gory, for very violent sort of stripped down narratives of just a killer and people getting killed. And, so, and also loads of zombie films. And loads of zombie films, which have never been particularly my favourite. But, th- I mean, this is sort of a zombie film. Well, so he was he was basically told by producers, okay, we want you... So this was a period where he was really struggling because he started to make money in the mid-70s by making hardcore films because his own films weren't doing as well. I mean, he came out with these passion projects like The Iron Rose and Lips of Blood that put him severely into debt and didn't really have good critical reception. But so he was comfortable for a while because he could make these hardcore films that do have a lot of the sort of weird genre and surreal elements. But when that started to slow down by like 79 80 81 he was forced to take more direction from producers and basically with this film they told him okay you know you made grapes of death we want you to make another zombie film and he really wasn't interested in repeating himself so he did this kind of underhanded thing where he turns Catherine into this like zombie vampire hybrid 
Yeah, it's, she it's is still so unusual. She has aspects of both, doesn't she? Um, so she she definitely does. It starts off these two toxic waste dumping grave robbers. Um, <laughs> which is it sounds more ridiculous really when you say it out loud. The, the first time I saw it, because I thought it was just going to be yet another sort of trashy eighties Euro sort of Sasha type thing you know zombie type thing and it does start off very much in that vein where these two guys they go into this crypt they were going to steal jewelry off a corpse there's all these barrels of toxic waste (laughs) yeah which which is how they get down there it's for some reason they're supposed to take the toxic waste to a dump but they're lazy and they don't feel like going that far so they find this abandoned chateau and think, cool, we'll leave it in the crypt, like in the basement. And we'll break into the coffins and steal the jewels off the From all corpses, these dead rich people. Which are just, the coffins are just sat there. They're not in a tomb or anything. They're just there. <laughs> like you can just leave the lid It's so off. strange. It is really strange. When you first watch it, it's like, you know, is this going to be another burial ground? Because it's... Which is how it seems. And it even kind of looks like burial ground in parts. <laughs> it's so strange. Um, there's an earthquake and the toxic waste <laughs> like <you> do. <laughs> goes everywhere. <laughs> and then, and then, so is it because of the toxic waste? I've, the, it's it the is. toxic waste, isn't it? The amount of times I've seen this film, but I never quite... Sure. Well, it it kind of doesn't make sense. So the one thing that's always bothered me about this film, but is something that I really like, they lay down the barrels of waste and they start opening the coffins and snatching jewels. And one of the coffins they open contains the body of Catherine Valmont, who you later learn is has been dead for probably three or four years, but she's perfectly preserved and her body hasn't decayed at all. Which makes no sense, and he makes no attempt to explain it at any no. point during the film. But so you get the sense that maybe she wakes up and becomes a zombie because the toxic waste spills, but it's not like it really soaks her. So it's it's yeah, not a return of the living dead been, kind of situation. Yeah, I've always been confused because it's almost like they open the coffin and she's a vampire anyway, like because the the toxic yeah. waste goes off, but. Like you said, it doesn't really touch her, and that just seems to be in there to confuse matters. So I'm, we're spending too long just saying. <laughs> well, it, I think always, every time I watch it, it, it always like so toxic waste. The coffin. Well, because she's, you watch it, you <laughs> watch it, and you think like there anyway. It's sort of that's yeah. Like, you know, is that just a coincidence? But. The she gets out of the coffin and gouges one of the man's eyes out, which is which is great. So abrupt and unexpected. <laughs> and I think it's vicious. Oh, it's so vicious. And I think the whole toxic waste thing was a way of him saying to the producers, look, I did what you asking, except now I literally don't give a fuck. <laughs> and now I'm going to turn this into a beautiful, poetic love story tragic love story that will make <laughs> everyone so sad by the end yes <laughs> it's brutal it is brutal uh it's a simple story though so basically um Catherine, who's been dead uh had a childhood friend who was um who was helene who's played by marina piero in her 
as she's older and you get this flashback to the two girls making it you know they were really close and they hung out together and they made a blood pack that if one dies yeah (laughs) if one died the other would follow and there's this music box that they have that plays a tune and you find out that they were really really close and when Catherine is resurrected or escapes from her coffin shall we say she might have already been awake we don't know we don't really get much the circumstances of how she died or or what happened um she can't speak she's just like this animal that has to kill and drink blood but she kills like a zombie she's quite violent about it and she doesn't just drink from the neck she eats guts and all sorts of stuff so she gets on the phone and plays this music box to Helene and calls to her Allô. Madame Valmont, vous m'entendez, c'est Hélène. Je rentre à l'instant de voyage et... Catherine. Répondez. Répondez, qui est à l'appareil So he makes it seem like she wakes up and has no understanding of who she is or where she is, but her her only surviving memory and her most powerful memory is of the time she spent with Helene. So she goes and sits in this really sad scene. She goes and sits in her childhood bedroom and that's when she calls Helene and it's sort of Helene who brings her back to herself. So then you get this awful love story. It's I say awful in that it's really tragic. Where so the, she's stuck in a, a childhood home, which is someone's trying to sell it off, and presume all her relatives have gone, and there's an estate agent there, and she dispatches people if they come near the house. Quite violently. Yeah, anyone who comes to look at the house dies. I think you get the estate agent and her boyfriend sneak into have sex and they get it quite nastily. So really awful uh, death scene involved in that one. And then Helene turns up and takes over and becomes almost like a, a parent to Catherine, which is... And doesn't give a shit about the corpses in the living room. No, she just cleans them up, gives Catherine a bath, you know, figures out she needs blood to live and then finds her victims because she loves her so much she wants to keep her alive she will do anything and this comes into the whole jackal thing where you know marina piera's role in that isn't the typical you know gothic maiden at all she's engaged to dr jackal and as he becomes mr hyde she gets she decides she wants to take some of his formula as well and so she becomes well, more like an animal by the end of that. She's very animalistic. She is anyway, as an actress. She's quite a primal, isn't she? She is. She's amazing. But I think it's also a similar sense where she just wants to be with Jekyll, partly because of her sexual attraction yeah. to him and their, their chemistry, but her attachment to Jekyll is... It's sort of suggested without being overtly stated. Her attachment to Jekyll is that she wants to escape the sort of confining 
social environment that her family is is part of. Yeah. And I mean there's this great scene where after their so after their dinner party for their engagement, they sneak into another room and kind of make out and it's clear that she wants to have sex with him then and there and she just doesn't care. She just wants to be away from everything except for him. So she's as sort of obsessive in this in the way the more she kills, the more like an animal she becomes and the more human Catherine becomes, which is really interesting dynamic. Because so sad though. Catherine starts to become conscious of what she's doing. Um, and feels guilty and doesn't and want feels to. horrible and you know of course Helen's just marching people in there and getting quite cruel about it as well which I don't think any other actress could have done the the, the role because she was great at that sort of cruel animalistic thing Marina J'étais bien. Tout était flou autour de moi. Des sensations fugitives. La mort m'aurait reprise tranquillement. C'est toi qui veux m'attirer dans ton monde de vivant. Tais-toi. Je t'en supplie, tais-toi. Regarde. Je suis entourée de cadavres. C'est moi qui ai fait charnier. C'est moi qui ai vidé ces corps de leur sang pour qu'ils coulent dans le mien. Pour faire de moi une mort vivante. Assez. Assez. So I know that I, I think it was supposed to be Teresa Ann Savoy. Which I don't think that would have worked. because That wouldn't have made any no. sense. That wouldn't have worked. I mean, even in her later role, Sobrovchek, like, Love Rights, she's... Oh, she's so good in Love Rights. Oh, she's she's great in that. She's just so sadistic. She's just got that, that sense about her, very powerful as well. Also very sort of wanton. Yeah, very like, wanton. <laughs> well, I love that film. No one ever appreciates it. I, I really... That film is... I mean, I think we we keep saying that we're going to do a Barabjic retrospective <laughs> at some point, but his his films, like, I love that so many of them have been restored in the last couple of years and given these great treatments, but that, I think that deserves one, certainly. It's great. It's really good. She's, she's very, it's almost like you see a progression throughout her career. Where she becomes these more sexually dominant, cruel characters. Where she started with Barofchak and stuff like Convent Walls. Uh, yeah, and Immoral Women. She's, yeah, she's you know, and fantastic. Then she, and then she sort of moves on in her career. And she made a really good sadistic bitch. <laughs> in this, though, she's sort of a bit sadistic, but also very... You feel sorry for her because she just loves... She just loves Catherine to the point of obsession... It's almost it's almost like Elizabeth and Eva in fascination. It's this strange sort of love becomes very obsessive and so well, it becomes that's, cruel. I think you see the kernel of that in Requiem for a Vampire where so Rolan has these like I, I mentioned before, he has these kind of films that 
deal with two female protagonists and sometimes they're named Michelle and Marie and they're not the same characters but they share similar characteristics and in Requiem for a Vampire Michelle and Marie as you mentioned earlier start out the film where they're for some fucking reason dressed as clowns in a shootout and they it's find so themselves good that they are though. It's, <laughs> it's wonderful but like they find themselves tra- it's it's almost like a fairy tale they find themselves traveling through the forest and they find a cemetery and they wander into this chateau and these vampires it's it's definitely reminiscent of nude vampire and shiver the vampires where there's this sort of aging male vampire who wants to initiate them into the cult and continue his bloodline and Michelle is all for it because all she wants is to be with Marie forever. But they have to remain virgins in order for this to happen, which they have sex with each other, so I'm guessing the definition of virgin is a little is a little yeah. tenuous. <laughs> but Marie is not quite as into it. She wants her freedom. She wants to be able to have sex with whoever she wants, love whoever she wants. And Michelle's sort of obsessive jealousy kind of rears its head. I think it's interesting as well, you pointed out these grandmaster figures, all these older men, vampires, you, you see it in Shivers, you see it in La Nue, you see it, these these sort of head of the vampire cult, it's usually this chilled out old guy. And he's always so chill. Yeah, always so chilled, like a bit of an oracle. But in these later yes. films, he's Fascination, Living Dead Girl, Two Orphan Vampires. That that character's completely gone. It's a completely female-dominated world. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of what makes his later films so interesting. I mean, even in something like... And it, probably most people will not have seen this or will think it's ridiculous, but... He made this movie called Sidewalks of Bangkok, which is essentially a crime thriller about these spies who are trying to get this secret document that this prostitute happens to be in possession of. And it, again, it stars Francois Blanchard, but there, instead of there being this sort of old male figure, there's yet another cruel female character who's the antagonist. And it's just this sort of dynamic where the male characters who appear fade away or they're easily forgotten. I mean, that that even happens here. There's this kind of subplot Can we talk about the... Are we going to talk about that bloody photographer? Yes, no, that's exactly... That's exactly where I'm going. I'm a going. photographer. It's, it's just like, ugh. I hate, <laughs> I hate this character. And she's so, the, the oh, worst. she's so obnoxious. <laughs> the worst is her boyfriend. So this, this film basically has one major male character, this asshole named Greg, who, <laughs> so the reason that things kind of come to a head for Catherine and Helen is that these tourists Barbara and Greg are traveling through the countryside and Barbara, as she tells fucking everyone, is a photographer and (laughs) happens to snap a picture of Catherine outside and becomes obsessed with figuring out who she is and kind of goes on this like detective mission, even though the people in the town tell her, no, that woman died years ago. And Greg is just 
he's such a dick. <laughs> but it's like he might as well not even be in the film. He's it's so useless. insignificant. He's really no, he's like... so. He's like offensively useless. <laughs> he is offensively useless. You just want to slap him. He's got he this. Um, he's got this girlfriend who's like, oh, she's just so vile. They go, they go for coffee and stuff, and she's taking these pictures and having a picture taken. She's like, I don't want to be doing this. I'm a photographer, you know. I'm just like <laughs> really important. And he just goes along like with this annoying grin on his face. Oh, and you're thinking, well, he just doesn't that care. Desperate that you have to be with this this woman. Like this woman <laughs> is the worst. Go your own way, buddy. But he's he's an asshole to her. He. So she acts like I'm an important, like you were saying, she acts like I'm an important photographer and this is my art. This is my career. <laughs> so and annoying. he's like, he's like, whatever, babe, go snap your pictures. <laughs> <laughs> he's just too chilled. Oh, they're awful, those two. And they speak English, don't they? In a, in a French they, dialogue they film. Do. It's almost like they're so offensive. They can't, you can't have them speaking French. He's got to emphasize no. the fact of how offensive they are. I have but they get theirs <laughs> they do get theirs um, <laughs> did you hear that no it's Catherine Valmont she died two years ago oh sure come on it's a classic case of mistaken identity it just all seems so strange look it's just a picture of one woman who looks like another woman you know how the camera lies what's so strange about that she's strange just take a good look at her. No shoes, hardly anything on. And the look on her face. I mean, walking through the woods. She looks like she's ready for the booby hatch. I think you are too. I'm gonna go back there. Find out some more. So it has some really ridiculous over-the-top violence that... And as we mentioned, the whole film is very gory, but it has sort of an unexpected almost campy level of violence but then quickly changes tracks so that it you just want to cry i think the first time i i saw it i just kind of sat there for half an hour and thought like did that just happen it's devastating it's, it's... really devastating like even no matter how many times i see that film it's still devastating yeah i when i was writing about it I thought, like, how many times can I actually watch this? That it it's too much. <laughs> but it's it's probably if I had to pick a favorite, this is probably my single favorite of all his films because I think, despite some of the problematic elements that we've mentioned, like the fucking photographer and the opening that makes no sense, he really manages to nail that sort of theme of tormented tragic love in a way that is just so perfect and it's so sad well, i think a lot of his films is well the endings are quite uplifting or there he tries to be positive and like you said know. earlier vampirism can signify freedom it's like alternative lifestyles or you know it's got these different meanings and then even fascination even though it's quite cynical it's like it doesn't, it doesn't, like, the ending to that, it doesn't feel devastating. You just think, oh, fair play. 
you know. But well, with this think... one, he just hits you in the face with it. You just don't. You just don't. Yeah, see there's where no. It's... Yeah, there's no. You don't expect that it's going there. There's no buffer, and I think this is sort of indicative of his later films, where he takes these female pairings. And he has one or both characters die. And, I mean, The Escapees, which is another one from around this time that I don't think a lot of people have seen, has a similarly tragic... It has almost the same ending, and it's just so gutting. Because you come to love these characters so much, and despite the horrible things they do, they do them all because they love this other person. Yeah. And I, I don't think horror as a genre, typically deals with that very often. No, it doesn't. There's usually some supernatural reason or some psychosis or, you know. But with Roland, even with all his films, you do invest in the characters. Even when they're in these really surreal narratives, you... And <laughs> when they have very little dialogue. Very little dialogue. And even in this, they don't... I mean, Catherine can't even speak really for most of it she's just you know sort of almost catatonic for the first 40 minutes she just looks really sad and yet somehow you really really feel for her just from facial expressions and you know just the dynamic between the two women so well I think it's because he loved these characters so much and he really brings that to the screen, even when he's working with no budget or even when he's dealing with a problematic script or something like a later film from, which was filmed in 89, but not released till the mid nineties, like Killing Car, where he shot it in, you know, just a couple of days. You can feel his love for the characters. So wrapping up now, I don't want to leave on Devastation. <laughs> it's hard not to with it this always film. ends up like you know we start laughing it's all like and we always end up on some really depressing note always well just we deal with some pretty <laughs> serious films <laughs> you know but this has been a celebration obviously um it's been great that it's fallen the same week or the same weekend as the book launch obviously because it's quite weird when we were planning these episodes it was like oh well you know maybe we should juggle them around and just wait you know and we were waiting for the go ahead and then it was just complete coincidence that it that it fell on this particular that wasn't planned at all was no, it, it not just, at all you know once again the universe in synergy so it's good you know and it would be nice to do like a whole thing on Roland because there's so much more to say it's been I difficult that. just trying to do this in one episode with all these moral tales just picking three films yeah, it's been a struggle, but I feel like it's well worth... I mean, just some, from some of the feedback we've gotten so far, it seems like people are discovering new films that they haven't seen before or are happy to hear that other people love directors that they love who maybe have bad reputations. Like, I mean, Roland deserves endless celebration. I mean, every, every director so far has been like a defense of, hasn't it? In a way, Celebra- celebration in a in a in defense of which is, you know, pretty our much our specialty. <laughs> yeah, our specialty with threats of violence, but it's pretty <laughs> much the sentiment of the book of moral tales. I think. Yeah, and I think all, all every single chapter basically says 
you thought this about Rolan, or maybe you thought this about Rolan, but really this is true. And these are his sort of in-depth range of influences and how he's working with literature and art and how he manipulates genre and does things unexpected and is such an important part of the fantastique tradition. Once again, thanks for listening to Daughters of Darkness. Tune back next month for one more Immoral Tales-inspired episode. But speaking of Roland, I just wanted to mention the Indiegogo campaign for the book I'm editing, Lost Girls, the Phantasmagorical Cinema of Jean Roland. We'll link to it on this episode's page at Diabolique, and every contribution will help get the book printed in color and ensure all the contributors are fairly paid. Even sharing on social media helps. Kat, is there anything you'd like to mention? Just a reminder to everyone that Diabolique 26 is running out in shipping, so if you've ordered a copy or are a subscriber, yours will be en route. Please get on social media and let us know what you think of the issue. And if you are thinking of picking up an issue, stocks are limited and can only be purchased from our website at this time. I'd advise you to do that sooner rather than later. We're also excited that we'll soon be launching our digital issue for those who prefer the format, so keep an eye out for that. It is a beautiful issue and one that we're all really proud of, so please support independent print and pick up a copy, download a digital issue, or help spread the word. Once again, thanks for listening, and let us know what you think on Facebook or iTunes.